Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Well, welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Uh, and today's guest, I've been excited about. We we were supposed to have you on a while ago, and we got our we we got some scheduling conflicts to happen. And, and I was like, ah, we got to get Robin back on. And so today's the day, and we have with us Robin Everhart. And and Robin, her title is not nearly as important as her passion and her why. But Robin is a very accomplished leader in today's corporate America. She's currently the the SVP and the chief. Human Resources Officer and Transformation Officer at Louisiana Pacific Corporation, and she's down in Nashville, but she does have a little bit of Buckeye roots. We'll try not to give too much of her credit to her Georgia degree roots. We're going to find out most of her gifts, I'm sure, were molded as a Buckeye here in Ohio because she she led companies here, was a, was a senior leader at CentOS. She's worked at Home Depot, at Winn-Dixity, and she's really passionate about not just HR functions, but leadership, diversity, inclusion, organizational design, cultural development, and, and she's just a dynamo. And I can't wait for our listeners today to get to know Robin a little bit better. She's won awards that really would resonate with all of you uh, female leaders today that are out there listening, like uh, Executive and Corporate Diversity by Black Enterprise Magazine, one of Ohio's top 12 business women by the Ohio Diversity Council, YWCA Career Woman of Achievement. I mean, these are just to name a few. Like, she's just such an accomplished, passionate leader. And and I just can't wait to hear her story and have it uh, really resonate with how it's going to help us, both men and women, uh, think differently about our own path and our own purpose today. So, Robin, thank you for being on. Super excited. I'm glad we could make it work. So most of our listeners are used to this process here. So they know that I don't just let you start talking about what you do, right? You got to start by talking about a little bit of your why, a little bit of that origin story. So let us in the behind the scenes of Robin Everhart. Uh, tell us how you came to be the person and the woman that you are today. Oh, goodness. Um, and, and I love that question. I love it, Jeff, because the reality is, is that we aren't what we do today without that why and without the past. And I would tell you that mine came to be because of my parents. So if I had to summarize my story for you, um, it it really starts back in the 1950s. So I am the daughter of um, parents that are still married today. They're coming up on their 60th wedding anniversary. They met on the campus of UNC uh, back in the 50s. And it was the first year, actually, that the campus was integrating. So we joke because my mom, um, my mom has been and is an activist. That is the core of her being. And we joke to my dad that that period of time in his life was was called bail money because it's so different, Jeff. You, you've got my mom who is is an activist and a voice for those who don't have one. And constantly looking to ensure there's equity. And you have my dad who was um, a ball player and a, a baseball player and Navy. And after UNC went the business route and to shorten the story was a high level C-suite executive for 30 plus years. And uh, you put those two combinations together and it really created this love 
um, an exposure for me of two worlds, a, a business world that I loved. I loved going to my dad's office on the weekends. I loved strategy and, and hearing all the things he was doing and he was willing to share with us, which was great. And then you had my mom who's, who, who believed that her sole purpose was sharing with her children kind of the underbelly of all the cities where we lived. And with my dad working in Hartford, I mean, we had access to New York and to Boston and Rhode Island and Hartford. And my mom really viewed her role as you have privilege and others don't. And you need to see what that is and learn what that is. And my, my brother and I joke at Thanksgiving at times that we'd be like, do we know that person? <laughs> and my brother would be like, no, nope, one of moms. Um, so she really was, when I went off to college, um, I was certain of my path. I was certain I was going to go get a master's in social work, Jeff. I was going to save the world. I was young and idealistic and I was just going to do it all. And it was my mom who instilled that as well as my dad of you can do anything. It does not matter who you are. It doesn't matter your gender. And it was my brother, my older brother who really carried the shield for that. So a great example of that is when my brother was a teenager, my parents let him go do this Knowles course and Knowles is national outdoor leadership school. And they drop you in the middle of the Wyoming and Colorado woods and you have to survive, et cetera, et cetera. So he's seven years older than me almost. So when I reached uh, my teenage years, I wanted to go do that. And my dad was like, are you kidding me? I am not dropping my 14-year-old daughter, 15 at the time maybe, in the middle of the mountains to go survive. And my brother was like, well, why not? You didn't hesitate to drop me in the middle of the woods. And if I can do it, she can do it. And... Um, he really was a beacon for me, and um, I, I followed in his footsteps for school. He did his undergrad at University of Georgia and then went on to Yale Law School, and I went to University of Georgia, and then knowing I wasn't going to go into law, had gone back to Connecticut to pursue my MSWP um, for social work at UConn. And it was at that point, Jeff, that um, that was my path. It was clearly defined. And my brother, who was my shining star, um, had always been there for me, would give me the shirt off his back, you name it. And um, he called me while I was back in Connecticut at school, and he, he's never asked for anything. And he called me and he simply said, Rob, I need your help. And in my mind, I didn't think twice. You, you go and you help your family. And I literally packed the car that week. Um, made a deal with myself that I could finish my MSW anywhere. There are plenty of schools back in Atlanta that I could finish my MSW at, and I was going to help my brother. And uh, when I got there, uh, things were not as they seemed. So this shining star and person who had given me everything and valedictorian at Yale and all these different things, partnered a law firm, and I show up, and um, everything is just upside down. And my brother, it turns out, is a drug addict. Wow. And um, so my world changed significantly. And I spent the next couple of years uh, taking any odd job I could just to help keep a roof over our heads, make sure that we were standing upright. I thought that my job was to fix him, to save him. And it took a, it took a long time to anyone who's who's been exposed to addiction to recognize that I, I can't fix him. And I can't help him. 
Um, and if anything, I was probably the enabler. I had to make a decision what I was going to do. And I packed up a U-Haul and I left. Um, and Jack, it was probably the hardest decision I ever made because in making it, I didn't know if the next call I was going to get would be whether it was to come identify a body, get a body from jail. I didn't know what it would be, but I knew that nobody could do this unless he wanted to do it. Um, now, happy to report 18, 19 years later, he's clean. He's, uh, unbelievably successful. He's a beautiful family. Um, and we're one of the fortunate ones who can share that story because most can't. But it changed the trajectory for me. And my path had been uh, completely uprooted. So my goal of saving the world and, and MSW and all these things, I, I now didn't have the money to finish that. I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. Um, and I wound up just, um, trying to figure it out. And it was through a, a friend that I landed a job as a recruiter, which, um, I didn't love the recruiting piece. What I loved was the social work piece of working with people who didn't like what they were currently doing and wanted to do something different. So that whole interview human dynamic, why don't you like what you're doing? What is it you think you prefer to do or what's the difference in the company and making that connection. And long story short, um, I refused to place somebody and was getting a lot of pressure from the company of you need to place this person. The company wants him. You get paid a pretty hefty retainer or a fee, right? When you place that person. And I said, no, I said, that's not the right place for this person. It's essentially the same place he's leaving with a different name on the door and he's going to be miserable and he's not going to come back and use us. And this is not going to work. And ultimately I got fired and they hadn't done anything illegal, but ethically I didn't believe what they wanted me to do was in the best interest of this person and or the company long-term. And surprisingly that um, lesson, my being quote unquote fired for you know, something that I believed was unethical led me to Home Depot. And I wound up taking an entry-level position, ironically, um, in the legal department for compliance and ethics. Mm. And it's just kind of amazing how little things like that line up and start to define who you are and what you do. Well, for you though, boy, what a, what a great story. Um, there's a lot to unpack there, Robin. I mean, you, uh, Having 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 the gen, having the genetic predisposition for leadership, competition, um, you know, executive thinking strategy, and then this passion for social justice and activism and and people that doing the right thing the right way, um, you know, you 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 were destined to be where you are today. And then the path with your brother, and I mean, all of us are a product of our of our life's experiences. I think not all of us take time to actually pause and take inventory of what some of those experiences were long enough to know what they did to us and for us. And, and then when you get to this job as a recruiter, I, th I start to see where you, you started to recognize the passion you had for helping other people, not just take a job, but find their passion and do something that was meaningful. So what I want to ask you about, cause you're so passionate about transformational leadership and, and, and seeing people come into their, and we call it the superpower, but 
why is it that so many people find themselves just being molded to what they think the culture, the family, the society expects of them, and then sometimes can get lost down a a non-purpose rabbit hole for decades before they realize they're just not fulfilling what they know to be true about who they are and what they're supposed to do. Why, why is that? Why do people get stuck in that, that vicious cycle of non-purpose, of conformity? It's fear. And, and it's a valid fear because we've created it as a society, Jeff. We're not giving people enough permission to authentically show up. We're so... And I've been in the corporate arena long enough. Listen, I understand winning and I understand the competition and I'm all about it. I just, through my experiences, have taken a different approach that to win and to compete and to be successful, it's the people who are doing it. Whether it's an athletic team, whether it's a company, whether it's your family, regardless of what it may be. And when you can unleash the people and their strengths and the passions, the metrics and the winning and all of the things that are key performance indicators that you have to hold people accountable for happen. And I think the reason that people, and and I'm guilty, listen, I still have plenty of doubt. I think the reason that people get stuck is because they haven't been given permission to show up differently. And that's part of what intrigued me about the diversity and inclusion piece of leadership. We have such a defined societal definition of success in corporate America. And for a long time, that has been predominantly white male, very direct, larger than life personalities. And when you have things like that that have been created it's very easy to begin to believe, well, I can only be in that position if I look like this, if I speak like this, if I act like this. And it's taken years upon years to recognize that leadership can be loud, it can be quiet, it can be um, confrontational, it can be collaborative, it can be all of these different things if we allow it to show up that way. And we're, we just haven't gotten good at that. And it's part of my current focus in my position now. And what I found, Jeff, is that when I was courageous enough to show up as Robin, instead of Robin emulating to be somebody else, I was better. I was a better leader because I can emulate everybody in the world, but my being that person doesn't make me great. My being me makes me great. And more people need to um, find the courage, which is easier said than done, but also be given the permission. So we as leaders need to permit, and we as those seeking more need to be courageous. Yeah, and it's so hard. You're right. We're molded into this you know, conformity box of projecting who we think our, our boss, our leader, our manager, who they expect us to be, not necessarily who we really are. And what happens then, in my opinion, is, is then we do our, our leadership a disservice because we're not functioning in our superpower. We're functioning down this path of who they think we think they want us to be. 
And then we're not as productive as we can be. We're not as creative as we can be. And then, and so it's this vicious cycle. And I, from a, here's where I want to go with this. Cause I think this is really important because I want everyone out there to, 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 to think differently about this. Uh, we live in a culture today where um, there is a lot of discussion around inclusion and diversity more so than ever before. Yet there's still a very big disparity uh, of opportunity in different, in different areas. And now here's where, and, and I've had different other folks come on the, the podcast and I'm just real and raw, right? I know that the science behind connection is if I'm vulnerable and, and I'm authentic and I'm honest, even if I'm wrong, that you're, you're probably going to trust me because you know that I'm not hiding anything from you, right? Um, and the credibility can come later, but the connection always comes first. And what I've learned is I only know what I know. I don't know what I don't know. And so I grew up on a farm poor. And to me, Yes, today I'm a middle-aged white guy. I am the picture of what our culture says today is privilege, right? I am. I'm a middle-aged white guy who runs a company. So <laughs> by all accounts, I have all the privilege, and, all, and, and I do. But I don't know what I don't know because I was raised poor on a farm and, and, and was taught that nothing will be handed to you. You have to work and get educated and be the first person in your family to go to college. And you have to go out and do this stuff because it's not going to be handed to you. Um, so I, and then when it came to diversity, I learned quickly on sports teams, minorities to me weren't minorities, they were teammates and you either were good at your spot or you were bad at your spot. I didn't care what color you were. And if you were bad at your spot, you sit on the bench. If you're good at your spot, you play. And so I kind of just grew up with this. I didn't see it, but yet I know that I have inherent bias because I've studied the, you know, I know the neuroscience, right? I know that I do. Um, and so in today's culture, how do you help people, leaders, who have this inherent bias, regardless of, you call it, I think, the, the beliefs in your backpack, the backpack of belief, of how do you help them see things that they don't know because they couldn't possibly know because they've never walked that path? How do you help them be open to that? It's not always easy. Um, let me start there. And let me um, commend you for, we all have bias. Like for somebody to believe they don't is crazy. We all have bias because we're built on what we're exposed to, what we experienced, what our beliefs are, what our parents taught us, all, all of those different things. And if we haven't been exposed to something different, then we don't know different. And sometimes people believe, oh, that's not true. You don't have a, a clear example. I was interviewing for a position I had opened in the legal department many moons ago and had a, a, a laundry list of talented candidates and one woman happened to sit across from me interviewing and shared with me that she was newly married, um, couldn't wait to start a family, et cetera. And my wheels started churning. I'm like, oh my God, I have so few positions to fill. She's not going to want to do all the travel we want to do, blah, blah, blah. I had to check myself at the door. I had to check myself at the door because my bias immediately kicked in to the potential that a young mom would not have the drive or uh, commitment or whatever it may be to want to take on what was required in this position. Yet, you know what? I was that girl. I had all three of my babies while being an executive. So I had to check myself at the door and realize if somebody ever made those assumptions about me, and told me I didn't want this job or I couldn't do this job because of an assumption they'd made because of, I was a mom, I would have been pissed. So we all have the bias. And the way that I try and get people to recognize it, Jeff, 
and it's not always easy is when I refer to those backpacks of backpack of beliefs, nobody's is right or wrong. It's filled with our history. It's filled with what we've been exposed to yet. We've been taught that what's in our backpacks is right. We've been taught that that's right. You were taught that everybody needs to go work hard to get what they deserve, right? That's true. We all need to work hard. But what nobody's unpacked necessarily is, you know, you use the word privilege and so many people, when they hear that word, their hackles go up and they cringe and it's this dirty word to them. They're like, you're telling me I haven't worked hard or you're telling me I didn't earn it or you're telling me something was given to me. I want to put that to bed because that doesn't, that word doesn't take anything that you've done or anybody else away. All that word means is that some of the other factors that may stand in the way for others, we don't have to face. So I may have the barriers of gender um, or religion or whatever other barriers come from, just like you have your own, but race isn't one of them. So I, in, in my own right, have privilege, even though I face barriers. All of the work I've done, all the things I've, I've earned, we all have privilege, regardless of our race or anything else. Um, and we have to realize that all that word means is that some particular traits aren't standing in our way. And therefore, we have to eliminate that for someone else. So I always encourage people, don't lead your life or your teams or your conversations from within your backpack. We tend to lead and, and converse and form our opinions based on the beliefs in our backpack. And therefore, we believe everybody else's backpack has in it what ours has in it and that that's right. It's not. Hold on to your beliefs. Know that they're yours. But we have to be willing. I try and teach leaders, be willing to ask somebody to unpack their backpack. Be willing to look in there and say, whoa, that's different than what's in my backpack. Tell me more. We don't always have the answers. There, there's plenty I have learned, and I'll give you a great example. Even as a chief diversity officer, chief diversity and inclusion officer, there was a gentleman who worked for me, amazingly skilled and talented, and um, African-American, also happened to be gay, um, had, had grown up and worked in the South, had, all, uh, had, had an amazing history, and basically also came with a, a little bit of the essence of, I got this, I got this. I have checked off the boxes of diversity and inclusion. I live it, I breathe it, I got it. And he and I exchanged books. I gave him information on gender and he gave me information on being gay and African-Americans. And it wasn't until after we shared something that neither one of us had exposure to, he came in my office and goes, oh my God, Robin, I got to tell you, this was a little bit of a wake up call. I thought I had this. Listen, as a gay black Southern man, like I got this. He said, I don't have a clue. I had no idea that gender impacted some of what you experienced in the way that it does. I have no idea what it's like to be female. I may have had somebody come at me because of my race 
or because of my sexual orientation, but I've never had them simply dismiss me because I wasn't male. And when we're willing to see something from someone else's perspective, we learn something that makes us at least pause. I always tell people the key to diversity inclusion and to becoming better and to learning more is to be willing to recognize your own biases, be curious enough to ask, and more importantly, when you bump up against what a bias may be, pause. That's your time as a leader to pause and step back and say, what's, what's really driving what I think or feel? Yeah, that's really good. And I think we talk about this a lot, the concept of self-preservation orientation, that most of us, all of us are hardwired biologically for self-preservation. And we were talking to, I was interviewing Dr. Tony Jack recently, and we were talking about you know, the empathic pathway and network and the, versus the analytical network in the brain. And his work is all pointed to this idea that when we lack empathy, we can't drive change in ourselves and others. That, that it's literally wired into our DNA that empathy will allow us to be more creative. Empathy will allow us to be open to change. Not, not, not the other person, us. Correct. Right? And so when we can, when we can actually see ourselves in someone else's shoes and empathize with them. It opens us up to change. However, the challenge is, to your point, the beliefs in my backpack, I've, I'm subconsciously hardwired to believe those are correct. And if I find anyone whose backpack looks different than me, it equals danger. It equals risk. And back to your comment on fear, my brain is subconsciously wired for protection. Yeah, and it goes where it's comfortable. And... To us, comfort is sameness. That's human nature. Right. But what's interesting, and I want to tie this back to business for a minute because it's so, so important just in the personal aspect of our lives. But what so many people don't recognize, and all the research is there, diverse teams outperform homogenous ones because it's the different experiences and the different lenses and the different way of approaching something and the different experiences we've had that create differently. It's innovation. Now, it's harder. It feels harder. And homogenous teams have that sameness built in. So there's a level of comfort, to your point, that puts everybody at ease. And you have to be really intentional. People have to be willing to be intentional when it comes to diversity and inclusion. They have to be willing to be uncomfortable and challenge themselves that, well, this was my idea. Why are they challenging me on this idea? What? Well, maybe we should listen. Maybe we should listen because those different perspectives are what are driving companies forward. And the companies that have diverse teams outperform those who don't. And you see it repeatedly. Um, but it's hard. It's not comfortable. Because it's a good, it goes against our biology. Correct. Right? And I think uh, we say it a lot. We, we call it the safety box. And I say this to clients a lot. No significant change has ever happened to an individual or to an organization by staying in the safety box. And what you're saying is exactly that. We create these homogenous safety boxes because they, they make us feel safe. But you know, safety doesn't lead to significant change. You've got to step out of those in, in, in the neurochemistry that all goes and gets activated when you feel like you're stepping out and you're putting yourself at a little bit at risk. And anytime you use empathy or anytime that you try to think about someone else, naturally your brain says, this is risky. 
you could get hurt. You could get, you could get damaged. Now, not physically anymore. Sometimes it's physical, but most of the time it's psychological. And then to your point, depending on our backgrounds, our upbringing and our backpacks, the degree of risk we feel when we stick our neck out can be much greater. And for a female, I talked to my daughter about this. When she's, she's up against a, a culture, which is just now starting to embrace the possibility that a female can grow up to do anything a male can. You didn't even have that growing up. You had parents who believed that, but their culture didn't believe that. So I see her now, I get excited because she doesn't have a limiting belief. The culture, she hasn't been raised around a limiting belief that she can't do anything that her dad can do. She believes that she can do it and do it better. Um, And so that's important. It is so important. And I agree with you, it has changed. And she certainly has a path that has been um, it paved a little bit by others work. She's going to be hit smack in the face by it. Right. It's not, it's not fixed. It's not fixed. It's not. And, and, and I'll give you a couple examples that, that rear their heads regularly, regardless of what company you're in because of our innate biases. So think about, um, comments you may hear. So when, when companies now do, um, hiring, right? And they, they normally now do a plethora of interviews and then they have an information exchange and everybody gives their feedback on a candidate. You still hear often, if there's a minority candidate, you will still hear feedback such as that person was really articulate. That person was so well-spoken. Um, compared to what? Compared to what, right? You still have people who, from a performance review standpoint, and I I still get this, will say, when we're doing succession, we're going over high potential individuals. Oh my gosh, Jeff is a rock star. He's direct. He's unafraid of making hard decisions, even if it's not agreed upon. Um, He's driven. He's, He's assertive. Great. Now you take the female on the high potential list, and this is a conversation that happens almost every year. Robin is great. Her skill set's great. You know, she can be really direct. She can make decisions sometimes without collaborating. She can. Uh, she can be really aggressive. She can be assertive. All of the adjectives that were on your list that were strengths, same adjectives on my list as a weakness. Our areas of opportunity, right? <laughs> yes. This rears its head more often than not until we're willing to challenge it. So in my past role of DNI, I used to go sit in on succession plannings and I'd literally say, wait a minute, let's unpack that for a minute. Why did you believe uh, Karen's aggressive? Is she any more aggressive? Does she say things any different than Jeff does or Scott does or whatever the case may be. And if they said it, would you consider it aggressive? Aggressive to me is a a dog coming at me with like their teeth bared. Right. Assertive is simply knowing what you've got to offer enough to put it out there. And we have to change some of those conversations because even as things have changed, your daughter's going to face it still. And she's also going to face one of the biggest lessons I try and teach women and minorities for that matter is disregard the water cooler chit chat because there have been plenty of positions that my skill set and what I offer, what I have to bring to the table has put me in that position 
And yet the water cooler chit chat still follows up. She got the position because she's female. She got the position because she's the only woman. So-and-so got the position because they're black, whatever the case may be. And I've had individuals come to me and say, what do I do when, when somebody says that or I hear that? And I go, you ignore it. Because guess what? You didn't put you in that position. Somebody who believes you have the skill set to do this job better than any other candidate puts you in that position. You go prove that to be right. And the rest will take care of themselves. Somebody making the comment that it's because you're female or because you're minority, that comment is on them. Because here's the reality. If you have two uh, same positions, then I'll just use white male in this example because you had mentioned that, right? So if you're going for a position, Jeff, and you're up against another white male, you know there's only one position, They go through the skill sets. At some point in time, there's some determining factor that they choose that outweighs the other one, right? Oh, we're going to go with Jeff. He's an Ohio boy. He fits in. All other parameters may have been the same. When that happens and somebody else gets the job, you might think to yourself, God, what does that guy have that I don't have, right? You might be angry. You might be a little miffed. You might be whatever because we're humans and we feel that if we don't get the job. But because that person looked like you and was the same as you, never once did you say he got the position because he was a white male. That's only said because the candidates now look different. It gives people an easy out that somebody else may be more qualified. And it's only now that they're seeing women and minorities come forward as qualified candidates because only now have they been essentially allowed to show up and be as qualified. I mean, over 50% of the individuals now graduating are women. Why would they be showing up for interviews? And, and I've had people say, well, what happens if the whole team winds up women? I'm like, wait a minute, we have two women out of 20, and you're worried that the room eventually may be filled with all women? The room's filled with all men right now, and there's nothing wrong with it? Let's wait till we get to at least 12, and then we have the conversation. Is that right? <laughs> That's right. Let's get a little further. Then we can debate it. Yeah, and I think it's 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 good. You're right. It's definitely improving and changing, but there's just so many factors that you have lived and dealt with that, again, back to, to my perspective, you know, I sat in boardrooms, I've been on executive teams, and, and I was in a company that was fairly diverse by nature, which was good when I was in biotech, and they were intentional about it, but it was still probably still a five-to-one ratio of, of males to females or even white males to, you know, to, to diversity, right? And so we have a long way to go. And I think the thing for, for all of us out there that are your traditional middle-aged white guys, I think the challenge, at least has been my challenge for the past year, thinking about a lot of this is, am I able to your point, am I able to actually face my bias without fear? Because it is, it's only fear that, that, that would prevent me from wanting to know, why would I not want a minority on my team? Why would I not want a female on my team? Why would I not want that? It's fear of, of any bias I might have because the reality is, is I do want that. We, when I tell people that come onto our team here is, and I'm going to say this and hopefully it'll make the right, the right sense to you. I want people who believe the same beliefs, who think different thoughts. And when I say believe the same beliefs, I don't mean the backpack. I mean, have the same values, have the same wanting to make a difference for other people, like ha- have the same passion for, for other people. I want that belief, but I want you to have different experiences and be able to think different thoughts because I've learned that what's in this head of mine is not enough, <laughs> you know, to make an organization move forward. It's a very limited 
snapshot, no matter how good my superpower is, it's just one superpower. <laughs> and we are better. We are better together than we are independently. We all like to think that we're the best of the best and, and, and we bring the answer to the table. But the reality is, is as I've, as I've moved through my career and learned and, and continue to grow, it's by those quiet moments of listening and recognizing, oh, maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's a better answer. Maybe there's some truth in what that individual has said that I need to absorb. And being able to be courageous enough to not, um, not be afraid to recognize that I don't have the answers. Like the best leaders are capable of recognizing that somebody else may have the answer. And if we have the leadership ability to pull that best answer out of them, there's no pride of ownership. That answer doesn't have to come from me. It can come because I've been able to empower my team and surround myself with tremendous people. And we're so afraid sometimes that any little crack or any little ounce of vulnerability um, denounces our capability. And my purpose is to let people know, no, no, it's, it's actually the reverse. Your vulnerabilities, your authenticity, you're willing to be transparent and honest um, in certain times when you may not know the answer is what makes you a better leader. And, you know, I kind of live by, there's a great, um, there's a great quote, I may botch it, but there's a great quote, two of them that I love. One is by, Mel, uh, by Nelson Mandela, and, and it really goes back to my why and purpose. And it talks, Jeff, about the fact that um, Mandela always stated that what counts in life isn't just the mere fact that you've lived, right? Because we're all here living and we're all going to die at some point. It's the difference we've made to the lives of others. And that may not hold true for everybody, but when you ask the purpose and why, for me, that's, that's it. It's an impact piece. And the other one that really resonates, and you mentioned this talking about being a farm boy and, and working hard, is that I always tell people, like, where you start doesn't dictate where you end. And you should respect everybody along the way because you, you don't know when you may be working for them or they may be working for you. And um, Martin Luther has a great, quote that talks about the street sweeper. And again, I may botch this one too, but I love the essence of the story. And he talks about the fact that I don't care what your position is. If you're the street sweeper, you better be the best darn street sweeper there is so that when people look at you, they go, I want to be as great as he is. And that's how we should approach it. It's it, it's not by title and it's not by societal norms. It's by be the best authentic you that you can bring to the table regardless of what it is you're doing. And that is what's going to essentially expose your superpowers and make you the next potential candidate for whatever's out there. You, you said something and I know we're going to, we're kind of coming up on the clock here, but I want to, I want to highlight a couple things. I just wrote down leadership myth. And maybe you've said this as a quote before, maybe you haven't. If you haven't, we're going to coin it today. That vulnerability, our myth is that vulnerability denounces our credibility. And that is so true. That myth exists because as leaders, we're so, we've been trained to, 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 that we have to have the answer to be credible. And we have to have all the answers. 
And that the minute we don't have an answer, it shows vulnerability, which means people won't believe we're a good leader and nothing could be farther from the truth. And so for those listening out there that are in leadership positions, you, I, I get it. You're fighting your own training. Um, you've, you've clawed your way you know, to, to where you are and you feel like you've done that through your credibility. But the reality is the difference that we make in this life has very little to do with our credibility and much more to do with our our connectability and our willingness to bring others along with us because that actually leads to better credibility, right? It's, it's, it's funny how that works. Uh, this has been really, really powerful, Robin, and I knew it would. And it's given me a lot to think about um, because we, we operate in our, in our conscious analytical network a lot, as, as Tony Jack would say. And it, it takes intentional effort to stop and pause and do some self-reflection in the moment and become unconsciously competent at recognizing that I probably have these biases that are preventing me from being a good leader. I probably have these biases that are preventing me from helping others achieve their dreams and their goals. And that requires a lot of vulnerability. And I think that's the key. I would have taken away from you today is don't assume that everyone's backpack is your backpack. And the minute you are, you're probably not being a very effective leader. Right. And I think it's important to point out as you wrap that up, Jeff, that it doesn't mean that everybody has to agree. Right. It doesn't mean that everybody has to agree with what's in the backpack or have the same belief system or whatever the case may be. It means that we have to be open to recognizing we're not it. We were not put on this earth amongst billions of people um, for us to deliver the message, I am the only way, because that doesn't work. Right. That doesn't work for anybody. Yeah, there was only one guy that worked for. That was Jesus. It, 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 it doesn't work for the. It doesn't work for the rest of us. <laughs> well, well, do you have any final like thoughts as we bring this all together? Because I think there's so much. We got this is one of those podcasts that people are probably taking notes on, trying to go back and reflect on, on what you've taught. Is there any uh, final final words for the group? Because we do have a lot. We do have a, a very large cross section of people that listen to this of all genders and all back, ethnic backgrounds. And that, I'm proud of that. Um, but we also have a lot of people that are stuck in their own conformity of their own probably norms and, and upbringing that this has been a challenge to. Yeah, I wish I had the ability to just succinctly wrap that in a little package uh, for people. But I think the morsel is be, be brave and be willing to ask yourself the why, Right. Regardless of whether it's somebody in school, somebody who's trying to fit in when they're young, somebody who's trying to earn a position through their careers, um, somebody who's trying to empower others now because they've gotten to where they are, the key really is as you make decisions to roll through life and your career, you have to ask yourself the why behind it. Because sometimes we do it um, routinely. I'm supposed to take that next position because that's what's next. I'm supposed to go do this because my parents did it. I'm supposed to hire somebody in that position like the person who filled it before because they did such a great job and there's no other way to do it. We have to step back and ask, why? Why do I think that? What is my purpose here? Um, What is my goal of doing this? And oftentimes when we step back and ask ourselves the why, we may find the answer to be very different than the solution we initially thought was the answer. Boy, that's so good. And I think uh, th- th- this would have served me well about 25 years ago. Uh, you know, the, <laughs> and it's a good challenge, right? A good challenge for a lot of us to think about. Instead of thinking about what's next, 
if our mindset is on who we are impacting the most in our life, the answer the question should really be asking is, is who's next, right? Instead of what's next, who's next? Who am I supposed to help next? And what's that position look like? And we tell this folks, a lot of our clients on the sales side, the minute that I can get you to move from a selling mindset into a mindset of serving by solving, the entire customer conversation changes. And again, right, it's empathy, it's perspective, it's, it's humility and, and all of those things. So, wow, what a great, what a great truth to end on. So thank you so much for your time today. And I'm really looking forward to our audience getting to hear this wisdom from you. We really appreciate you being on. Well, Jeff, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for having me. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.